this is cold brew and coconut LaCroix. I've got full strength cold brew. Yeah, Matt is going to be more equipped for whatever the 7 p.m. Friday news dump is. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. Uh, joining me today is Dara Lind, um, immigration reporter extraordinaire. And um, Dara will also be joining me and Sarah Cliff at the Now Hear This Festival in New York on September 10th. Uh, it's going to be a, a live show uh, that we're doing there, uh, along with a, a number of other podcasts, also as all part of the festival. There's sort of one great ticket for the whole thing. Uh, hoping to see, you know, plenty of Weeds fans there, because otherwise uh, we're going to have to be talking in front of God knows what fans of other shows, which would be would be awful. Uh, we so have a super wheezy, uh, you know, plan for it too. So we're going to be regaling a bunch of people who care less than you do about the things you care about. Yes, no, it's going to be we we need weeds fans there. Um, it's going to be great. Uh, so. Dara is with me today because we wanted to talk about uh, DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, which there has been a lot of rumor in the winds that Donald Trump might announce its demise this week. We are sort of hoping for editorial purposes of of the show and also reasons of policy substance that that doesn't happen. Uh, But we are podcasting mindful of the fact that it's at least theoretically possible that an announcement will come out today saying that it's killed. I would say, I don't know, Dar, what's what's your judgment of this? I would say that the volume of buzz around this, it just suggests not necessarily that anything is going to happen today or this week, but that Donald Trump does not think that continuing DACA is really a good idea. Like he he's not he's not saying to people, hey guys, I like I looked at this, I decided we shouldn't kill this program. So can we stop talking about it? Right. So obviously in this administration, uh, the president thinking that something may or may not be a good idea doesn't necessarily mean that any you know policy announcement is forthcoming. He is not known for being the most resolute and decisive of United States presidents. Um, the reason that what is essentially some White House intrigue rumors with, you know, there are people in the White House who are known to want these protections to end because they see them as an amnesty. There are people in the White House who maybe don't want the president to to do that. The reason that this story is actually being taken seriously as an imminent policy change is that if there is no announcement about the future of the program by September 5th, which is Tuesday, a group of Republican state attorneys general, led by the attorney general of Texas, have told the administration already that they are going to file in a lawsuit to get a federal judge to rule that this program is unconstitutional. So it's essentially they've been trying to force the administration to make a move before the courts kind of take that decision out of their hands. And because of the way they would be doing this lawsuit, it is plausible that the federal court would at least initially rule against the administration. So it's, you know, Donald Trump, do you want to be the person who who is the decider who does this? Or do you want some so-called judge to do it for you? So because there's kind of that looming deadline, it does seem as if a decision is going to have to be made on DACA, you know, one way or the other before Tuesday. And the rumors from within the White House have been that there isn't a whole lot of support for really, 
you know, fighting the state of Texas in court to keep a program that is an Obama-era program to protect a bunch of unauthorized immigrants from deportation. That there, that there's just there might be people in the White House who aren't particularly keen on ending the program, but there have been very few rumors that Donald Trump, despite having said, you know after his election, that he wanted to come up with some sort of compromise, that the people who DACA was protecting were terrific people, that he had a big heart. When the rubber hits the road, it doesn't look like he's really moving toward picking a fight with his own party on this. Right. So, uh, I, you know, this is obviously important and, and would like to sort of look at the machinations and, and the policy options. But, but I really do want to roll this sort of back, give the sort of full Vox explainer treatment to this topic because people came across this issue, normal people who who don't necessarily uh, have relevantly affected people in their lives, came across this topic late in its development and have developed a lot of sort of strong, polarized feelings around it. Uh, the Dreamers are a sort of potent, uh, symbolic group as well as actual human beings. Uh, and as well as an organized, you know, political and social right. movement. Yeah. So, you know, I think we should really try to understand the, the question of, because it's, it's not initially obvious when you think about it. It's like, why would it come to be the case that a large quantity of children were being brought into the country illegally? Like, how did that, you know, I mean, anything can happen once or twice, but we're talking about genuinely a large number of people here. It's uh, somewhat over a million in terms of broadly speaking, who fits the categorization, 800,000 people enrolled in the program. Like, where did they come from? Right. So I think of this in generational terms. This is really the first time in U.S. history that you can say that there is a generation of, you know, a million people in this case, but, you know, part of many of their siblings are U.S. born. So if you think about that, really millions of people who are growing up in you know, this legal penumbra there in their unauthorized immigrants, but they've socially been with U.S. citizens. You know, like I said, their siblings, their classmates have been U.S. citizens. Their life experience has been that of U.S. citizens up until the point they hit like 16 and they can't get driver's licenses or can't apply for, you know, federal financial aid. And like at that point, it becomes obvious, oh, there is something different. That is not something that has really happened in U.S. history before. And there are a lot of reasons, you know, there are a lot of things that make this unlike, you know, past periods. But really, the immigration issue in the way we think, in the way we deal with it right now, where you have this very settled population of people who are living without legal status, you know, the majority of unauthorized immigrants in the U.S. have been here for more than 10 years. Many of them have been here for more than 15 years. That is not super precedented partly because usually Congress passes some big bills that fix these things when they come up, but also partly because the way that Congress acted over the last half century created this situation where you had a bunch of families growing up in the U.S. without immigration status. So the real problem here is border security to a certain extent. This is like really the case for why walls don't work. In the 1990s, the U.S. really started trying to build up the U.S.-Mexico border in a way it never really had to make it, you know, it had done kind of the enforcement at sea to make sure that people weren't coming into the U.S. from other, from the rest of the world. And then in the second half of the 20th century, it was like, oh, we should probably treat 
Mexicans and Central Americans more similarly to the way we treat Europeans and Africans. We shouldn't be giving them a free pass. The problem is that there's this land border. Uh, so finally in the 90s, they start trying to make sure that you can't get into the U.S. without papers. What that meant is that what had previously been this, you know, work migration of working age men, usually from Mexico, who would keep their families in Mexico and go into the U.S. for a couple of years and work and make some money and go back to Mexico and take care of their families and then go back up to the U.S., those repeated border crossings became much riskier. And so, and so I mean, I think this is important to understand because yeah. this is a sort of a classical phase of, of unauthorized immigration from, from Mexico in the in the what would you say, 70s and 80s? Yeah, yeah. Really, you're talking about from 76 to like the early 90s. Right. And and this is the situation on the border that many people sort of imagine as occurring more recently, that the border itself is just very lightly secured. And it is simply not that difficult for a person from Mexico to physically enter the United States without papers. And then you face, since you're not here legally, various kinds of legal encumbrances, but you can work off the books. You can you can work in farm labor. There's various sectors in which, you know, unauthorized workers from Mexico are traditionally employed. So this was a real thing that was happening. People could people could come pretty easily. But the upshot of that is that they would tend to come and go. Right. I mean, it's actually even, you know, the other thing that people think of as being more current that actually used to be the case and no longer is, is how easy it was to come here legally, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the Bracero program, which is kind of the guest worker program that everybody points to because it was so large for agricultural workers in the mid-20th century from Mexico, as a labor program had plenty of issues, but it was a, you know, it, it, did mean that it was not super difficult for someone who wanted to keep their family in Mexico and work in the U.S. to get that work authorization. So, like, you have people who had been working legally, who then in the, you know, 1960s, 1970s, no longer have the opportunity to work legally, but they can work illegally pretty easily. So, and and they can cross into the U.S. pretty easily. And then they so, are their so children. Legal, so legal guest workers right. become, become illegal, illegal, but yeah. in effect still guest workers. Right. Who come and go. Right. And then in the 90s, Congress wants to harden the border to, in their mind, fix the illegal migration problem. And what they actually do is they transform the illegal migration problem into much more of a something closer to like a one and done. You you come here and now you don't want to go back to Mexico because you're not going to be able to get back into the United States. Right. And right. So and at the same time, means, like if you want to have your family here, you're going to have to have them cross the border, which is sure dangerous, but it's a lot less dangerous than you crossing the border back and forth over and over again by keeping them in Mexico. So the demographics of the you know unauthorized population go from being largely male, largely working age, to being something that much more resembles the, you know, like a community as a whole. You have families, you have children settling down to the extent that they can in the U.S. because this is, it is less safe for them to leave. And this is actually something that you still see in 
uh, in dreamers today, even though, you know, I'm 29, I'm a, I would, I'm kind of in the, in some of the sweet spot of the DACA recipients, the, the median age for DACA recipients is 25. Many of those people are like, who are in their late twenties, haven't left the U.S. because they couldn't come back in legally. So they've actually seen less of, you know, their quote unquote home countries, less of the world than, uh, than, you know, even U.S. citizens, much less than you would imagine, because that kind of, you know, the, you end up sticking in the U.S. because you have, because you know you couldn't get back if you left. Right. I've been to Latin America three times yeah. because I have a passport. Yeah. But and, the sort of typical yeah. dreamer type person, you know, isn't able to go to right. their quote unquote home country yeah. because they, they wouldn't be able to to come back. So, right. and so is, you'll hear is these stories of like people who, you know, hadn't had never hadn't seen their grandparents since they were two being able to go back to their home countries, you know, over the last few years because DACA allowed them to come back uh, without, you know, getting barred. You've heard, you know, some stories of people whose parents were deported, who hadn't been able to see their parents uh, were then able to do so. It's it, you know, it's just. There's kind of the stereotype of, you know, dreamers are American in all the paperwork. They don't even speak Spanish. They only, you know, they've they've been in U.S. schools. That is true to varying extents depending on the population. But there is kind of an experience of being in America because you can't be anywhere else that this generation shares. I'm really excited that, that this week we're sponsored by by The Economist magazine. Uh, this is like one of the very first things that, that I started reading when I was in, in high school, I think, that got me really interested in, in politics and, and world affairs. It's a fantastic publication, has been for years. Uh, if you're somebody who loves to get down into the weeds, uh, The Economist really gives you a chance to dig deeper into what's happening in the world. Uh, they don't have a horse in the race. You know, you can trust them to bring you straight up facts on a huge range of vital topics. They cover politics, technology, science, the environment, obviously economics. Uh, I particularly like their sort of global viewpoint that they have on, on coverage. They're headquartered in London. They've got big offices in, in the United States, but also all over Europe, Asia. They they cover the whole world in a really rigorous, sort of insightful way. You know, I can only get into the weeds on so many stories myself. Uh, do yourself a favor, visit economist.com slash weeds, and they will give you a free copy of The Economist right now. Uh, they got the lowdown on the forces that are impacting our lives, changing our world. And, and it's really, it, it's like it's a well-written publications really admirable. They, they don't waste a single word. They cut through the noise. They help you stay well-informed in an entertaining kind of way. So dig into The Economist today. Visit www.economist.com slash weeds uh, for this special free copy. You can search Economist Weeds. Uh, you'll find it there. It's a, it's a great special offer. Um, you know, they think you're going to love the magazine. I love the magazine. Uh, check it out. Starting in the in the mid to late nineties, mm-hmm. you have family migration into the United States, um, and this means including some some quite young children are coming in, and you can enroll. Is there a specific piece of legislation that sort of you associate with the the hardening of the border? So I tend to associate it with the nineteen ninety six law, IRA, IRA. I have been told that that is a little bit oversimplified, that it kind of started a little bit before that. Um, But IRA IRA really does a lot to make it harder for you to become legal if you have been in the U.S. as an unauthorized immigrant. Uh, It used to be the case that if you had a child who was a U.S. citizen who was 21, they could just apply for you to become, you know, to, to 
come as a family immigrant, even if you were living in the U.S., you know, you would be, quote unquote, admitted. Okay. Um, and that, you know, in 1996, Congress says, well, if you've lived in the U.S. as an unauthorized immigrant uh, for more than, you know, several months, you are barred from legally entering the U.S. for 10 years. Uh, so it made it, it, you know, it became much harder to kind of, quote unquote, get legal. It really became practically impossible to get legal if you had been living in the U.S., and your only option for becoming a legal immigrant was to leave for 10 years. If you're like 18, why would you, right. you know, why well, would but you So, so that, that's another important yeah. point, right? Because that's another thing that it was supposed to be a disincentive <laughs> right. to coming illegally. And, you know, maybe maybe it created some disincentive effect, but it had another impact of sort of freezing in place a population where classically people who'd come here to work illegally would either tend to go back home or else would sort of legalize themselves yeah. over time through family connections and, and things like that. But now you have a situation where you can be quite rooted in the United States, including U.S. citizen relatives, and not be able to legalize yourself and not be able to come and go. And so that's like the dreamer cohort right. stems this, from that. This also kind of plays into the question of like the – the proximate reason that DACA would be ended would be because of this, you know, these this potential lawsuit. The lawsuit is based in the claim that what President Obama did in 2012 by allowing these many of these dreamers to apply for temporary protection from deportation and work permits, that that was legally unconstitutional because you can't just tell a bunch of people we're not going to deport you. That's like that's an unconstitutional grant of executive authority. Um, the reason that that argument is in any way legally grounded is that in the past, when presidents have done this sort of thing, have given temporary protection from deportation to a group of people, it's usually been because they're about to have some way to get legal, but it hasn't materialized for them yet. So they're kind of bridging them in, right? George H.W. Bush did this for women and children who, you know, were related to people who were covered under the Reagan amnesty, for example. They were gonna, you know, Congress was gonna pass a bill, but hadn't done so yet. So in this case, you have people who for five years have kind of had this temporary protection. Congress didn't step up and give them any kind of permanent way to get legal status. So DACA is unprecedented in that way, but it's unprecedented because for most of the rest of U.S. history, it wouldn't have needed to happen. There would have been some other way for someone who was working legally in the U.S. and had an employer to petition for them or who, you know, had a – their siblings would have already allowed their parents to become citizens. Their, their parents would have allowed them to become citizens. There would have been some way for a bunch of people to get – quote unquote, get in line that doesn't exist in the year 2017. Okay, so this is, you know, we've been talking about sort of where as a, as a demographic cohort uh, does this group of people come from? And then another question is like, where does the, the dreamer, quote unquote, as a kind of social construct come from? Like, like when, when did that happen and, and, you know, how? Sure. So there are kind of, I think, two levels to think about this, right? One's the individual level and one's the political level. Individually, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of dreamers 
didn't necessarily know about, didn't know the details of their immigration status until it became relevant to their lives, right? Like you will hear some people saying, yeah, I remember having been put in a closet, uh, you know, to like hide from ice when I was 10 because my parents were worried because they saw a van. But you also hear people saying, I grew up with a bunch of people who looked like me and whose parents looked like my parents. And I didn't know that there was a difference between me and them until I thought I was going to go to college. And my parents said, we don't really think that's a good idea. We're worried that if you apply that something will happen. We can't, you know, you don't have a social security number. You can't apply for financial aid. So that causes a couple of things. For one thing, if you're a high school student, and you've been told for your entire life or, you know, you're in the entire life you can remember that the goal is to excel in school so you can go to college, so you can get a college degree, so you can get a good job. And you understand that the second, that like second and third parts of that are really intended for people who aren't you. The question of why you should bother to excel in school becomes super relevant. So there is a lot, you know, there, there are a lot of cases of people kind of losing motivation to succeed in school, even dropping out, having mental health issues, because they realized that the things they've built their life on were, you know, weren't necessarily lies, but were intended for people who weren't them. Um, the other thing that does, though, is because we're talking about people who are fluent in English, who are socially integrated, um, who have had this experience of, you know, being raised as Americans, that the idea of not being, not having full opportunities is something that they can, you know, get angry about and mobilize against. So Congress has been talking about what do we do with these kids for literally 16 years. Um, the first bill to legalize them, the DREAM Act, was proposed in 2001. You know, by that point, literally, if the DREAM Act were a DACA recipient, it could apply for DACA itself. It, that is how long we've been talking about this. But also a social movement began to cohere of people who had, who felt comfortable enough standing up and saying, we are, you know, we want to stay here. We are contributing. You should pay attention to us and you should do something for us. So, you know, not only was that kind of a political mobilization that ultimately pressured Obama into doing DACA to begin with because a bunch of unauthorized immigrant activists were basically dogging him everywhere he went and saying, hi, you're still deporting us. But also socially, there's been a move for people to come out as undocumented um, that's really been led by this group of people. It hasn't been led by their parents who have been often more worried, more conservative, less fluent in English, less comfortable, you know, in public spaces. It's been led by these you know, fairly socially integrated people saying, well, we have, you know, like we have the the privilege to be able to stand up and speak out. And if ICE tries to deport us, we know that there's going to be a lot of activists marching and we're going to be able to get some good clips in the papers. We're going to use this to make it clear to everybody around us that they do know somebody who's, you know, an unauthorized immigrant and that it's incumbent on them to kind of think to treat us like human beings and to think about what it means that we don't have these legal privileges. And, and I mean, this is also a group that I think is more able to assert itself politically because they can make the claim, I mean, I think quite quite accurately, that they have not done anything wrong, right? That, I mean, if you have people who, you know, 
cross the border without authorization as adults uh, saying, you know, whatever, standing up for, for themselves and, and their interests, you are going to hear from a lot of people like, well, you know, you shouldn't have broken the law if you didn't want to get kicked out of the country, right? And the claim that the Dreamers are able to make that garners, I think, sympathy from a broader cohort of people is that you don't break the law when you're seven years old, right? You do what your parents are telling you to do. And so a much more, a a, a sort of a more aggressive posture, you know, like sells in, in a way that isn't necessarily the case for for the parents of, of this kind of cohort of people. I do want to be super specific here because this is a claim that is made about the dreamers much more often than it's made by them. Um, there's actually uh, many dreamers themselves realized, you know, in the as as the idea that they were blameless because their parents were really the problem began to pick up steam. Many of them realized that they didn't that they were setting themselves up to get legalized while their parents were punished and didn't necessarily want that. So, you know, if you talk to dreamers themselves, they'll often say, no, why would I be mad at my parents? They did what any parent would do. They brought me to have a better life in the U.S. They were really, during the 2013 comprehensive immigration reform fight, really on the front lines of trying to make sure that everybody was eligible for citizenship. Um, I think you're right that Their circumstances make them really broadly sympathetic to, you know, like 70 percent of America supports, you know, the DACA program. That's not the case for legalizing unauthorized immigrants en masse. Um, But it's it's a coalition bread thing. Right. Right. There are definitely the centrist, you know, what is at this point the centrist argument of these people brought here through no fault of their own yada, yada, yada. And there's also the progressive argument that is, well, actually, People shouldn't be treated this way generally, but we're the ones who can stand up and demand our rights, so we'll take it. But, well, so, I mean, this is important to to the politics, though, because part of how we've gotten to where we are is exactly as you were saying, right, that when it seems like there would have been potentially some members of Congress who were comfortable with something like the DREAM Act— who were not comfortable with the sort of broad legalization, but the dreamer groups themselves were not asking for that. I mean, they they were, I mean, they were, uh, obviously they weren't like refusing legalization for themselves, but they were very much in the coalition for comprehensive reform. So like the idea that like, well, we could do Dream Act and not address the remainder of the population was a purely like DC idea, not a not, not an idea that had support from the activists themselves. And that be, that's like one of the reasons why it doesn't happen, right? It's it's easy for people who are sort of not invested to like spin up hypothetical compromises. But if nobody who really cares about the issue actually wants to make a deal, then it's very hard. Yeah, no, and you're going to see this become super relevant if DACA is in fact ended because there's then going to be a lot of pressure on Congress to, you know, find some way to protect this group of people legislatively because the executive branch won't do it anymore. But so the fundamental question legislatively in immigration policy, now that, you know, the Democratic Party is fairly uniformly in favor of a path to citizenship for unauthorized immigrants. And the Republican Party is 
less uniformly, but certainly for the most part opposed to it. You know, that 10 years ago, it was an issue that split both parties. That is less the case now. So now getting a bill passed is really a question of what are Democrats willing to give up to get legalization? Um, That calculus looks different for Democrats, for activists, et cetera, when you're talking about what are you willing to give up for 11 million people versus what are you willing to give up for a million people? And so there's been a reticence to treat, you know, okay, we could just do something for the dreamers as an option if you're going to give up anything at all. Doing the DREAM Act as a standalone thing, you know, they tried doing that in 2010, came within a few votes in the Senate, actually passed the House. Um, But doing something that is, you know, the kind of compromise that you think of, like, oh, well, we'll do more border security, we'll do more workplace enforcement, but we'll also legalize people. That's not appealing when you're talking about a million of the, you know, 11 million and like 700,000 of the 8 million people who are working in the U.S. without authorization. So you have a situation where Democrats don't want to negotiate with themselves and where Republicans, there are not a whole lot of Republicans standing up and saying, well, it is affirmatively important that we stick our necks out and protect these people. In that respect, what Obama did on DACA kind of allowed them to dodge a bullet a little bit. Um, There wasn't a whole lot of Republican complaining about DACA when it happened because everybody understood that he was acting to protect a group of people who most of America didn't really want deported. Uh, It was only when he tried to expand deferred action in 2014 that people started taking a hard look at the deferred action program that already existed and immigration hawks started feeling emboldened to say, well, we have this amnesty already right here. I've loved cooking for for years personally, but um, you know I've I've had a, a candy in my life for the past uh, two and a half years, and that's left me with a, with a lot less time. And, and Blue Apron is a really sort of great way to do some creative cooking, but in a streamlined way that sort of fits into my kind of busier lifestyle. Uh, it's affordable too. For less than ten dollars per person per meal, they deliver seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients to make delicious home cooked meals. There's a lot of variety. You can choose from a bunch of new recipes each week. Or you can let their team surprise you. Uh, recipes are not repeated within a year, so you'll never get bored. Of course, if you really love a recipe and want to cook it again, you can just like save the card and cook it again. They keep sending you new stuff. It's flexible. You can customize uh, what you get based on your preferences. They've got a few different delivery options. So you can find one that fits sort of your needs, your wants, your schedule. There's no weekly commitment, so you only get deliveries when you actually want them. It's it's super easy. You know, the meals come, you, you get a box full of all these ingredients. It's great stuff. They have step-by-step, easy to follow instructions, pre-portioned ingredients, and you can make it in 40 minutes or less. Uh, Their Blue Apron freshness guarantee promises that every ingredient in your delivery arrives ready to cook or they will make it right for you. Uh, So so that's really great. Um, And it's it's good for the the environment too, good for the community. Their seafood is sourced sustainably uh, in a program that's sponsored by the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch. Their beef, chicken, and pork come from responsibly raised animals. Their produce is sourced from farms that practice regenerative farming. So it's like, it's a great, convenient, affordable, fun way to cook it, and you can feel good about the food that you're cooking. Um, so here's the deal. Here's their offer for you. When you check out this week's menu, you can get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com weeds. You're going to love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. You go to blueapron.com weeds. That's Blue Apron. It's a better way to cook.
So let's talk about the the Dream Act. You, you said it was first introduced in in some form in, way back in in two thousand one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I really you know heard about it just in the two thousand nine two thousand ten Congress. At least I don't I don't recall it as having been that much in the mix back in two thousand seven when there, Congress was looking at immigration. I mean, maybe I just missed it, but like, I I don't remember this. Like, well, maybe we'll do the Dream Act instead, as having been particularly on the table back then. There was actually there was a Senate vote on the Dream Act in 2007, and it failed. Uh, I do not. I uh, I seem to recall that there, just like with comprehensive reform, there was some kind of brouhaha about what vote Barack Obama had taken on various, you know, during various parts of that process, but. It was a similar thing in 0607 to what it was in 09 and 10, which was people were trying to do comprehensive immigration reform. Comprehensive immigration reform wasn't going to work. Okay, can we try to do the Dream Act instead? In 2007, because again, it was still cutting, splitting both parties, uh, that was not a super compelling thing to do. In 2010, partly because a comprehensive bill had not actually been introduced, partly because, again, there was a lot of civil disobedience and activity on the part of dreamers themselves, you know, people sitting in Harry Reid's office trying to force a vote. Um, you know, in, in that case, it wasn't that they were trying to abandon their parents and the rest of the community. It was, well, you can do this without trying to give up anything. You know, you can you can pass this just as a way to legalize us without having to do a bigger package. So they tried that in the lame duck session and, you know, in, in a period where Democrats had just taken kind of a bloodbath in 2010, it was interesting to see a party that had been, even as late as the 2010 midterms, super reticent to talk about immigration and anything other than, well, of course, we have to secure the border. Uh, it was interesting to see, you know, Nancy Pelosi be willing to bring a bill to the floor, a bunch of Democrats, many of whom were about to lose their seats, be willing to vote for it. Uh, and, you know, Harry Reid, who had just had his seat saved uh, from a surprisingly strong challenge by Sharon Angle in those elections, thanks in part to the Latino vote, you know, follow through on what he'd basically promised the Latino voters in his state and make that a priority in the lame duck session. And it just partly because of a lot of procedural complaints on the parts of Republicans who had previously supported iterations of the DREAM Act that, you know, it didn't go through hearings, yada, 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 was not able to kind of surpassed the 60-vote filibuster threshold, those procedural complaints are usually a stalking horse in the Senate for, I don't support this, but I don't want to be on the record saying I don't well, support so, this. Yeah, so. let's, let's, let's set the table for yeah. this, right? So, I mean, 2008, Democrats win this sort of big, you know, landslide victory. Obama's president. Uh, they have 59 and then 60 and then 59 Senate seats. Uh, the Democratic platform of 2008 on immigration was very much a fudge. Um, you know, there were, this was still very much back in the day of we're going to secure the border, we're going to secure the border, we're going to secure the border. Oh, and oh, by the way, there's going to be a path to legal status for 11 million people and we're going to secure the border. But to the Latino community, Obama had made a fairly specific commitment that was, I would say, maybe heard more optimistically than it was really stated. But at any rate, 
There was a feeling that Obama had promised Latinos that he was going to do a major push for legalization uh, early in his presidency. I would phrase it as Obama won the endorsement of major Latino groups over Hillary Clinton because he was willing to put a timetable on when he was going to produce an immigration bill, and she was not. All right. (laughs) And he beat... I mean, I think the other factors important in this is that he won vast majority of support of the Latino community against John McCain, even though McCain had been a fairly consistent champion of immigration reform type stuff in in Congress. And then Obama proceeded to not move forward with any kind of immigration bill. And a lot of ill will is engendered by this process of events, both like in the Latino community, in the head of John McCain. Um, you know what I mean? Like, it's actually quite important, I think, yeah, to, to no, understand. That's, that's fair. And of course, not only is Obama not moving on immigration, um, but his White House on the political theory that if they demonstrated that they were tough on enforcement, that Republicans would stop complaining that Democrats were soft on the borders, uh, decided that they were going to continue the trend that George W. Bush had started of ramping up interior enforcement and deportations. So that's when you have Obama deporting 400,000 people a year. And the mix of that and not moving in Congress to fix this situation, not only did not have the intended effect among Republicans, because immigration hardliners in the Republican Party did not either, you know, believed that Obama was fudging the numbers or did not take that seriously as, you know, because they knew that Obama did support legalization. Uh, Meanwhile, actual Latinos are saying that the president who they voted for to legalize unauthorized immigrants is instead deporting record numbers of them and are losing faith in the Democratic Party as well. So so Latino groups are mad at Obama. Um, John McCain is mad at Latino groups. Right. 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 Tom Tancredo is saying that Obama should be impeached because he's not securing the border. And a lot of Republicans are hearing the same things that they heard in 2007, that, like, nothing's being done, that more needs to be done. Right. And And the political strategy was too clearly articulated. Right. I mean, it was like everybody understood that the stepped up deportations and the border enforcement was part of a political strategy whose end game was to proclaim that the illegal immigration problem has been fixed. And now what we need to do to like mop it up is to legalize the majority of the longtime resident population. And like everybody knew that, right? It, It wasn't, there was nobody sitting there who was like saying, wow, Obama is just fanatically focused on fixing the illegal immigration problem, who then if he at some point pivoted to and now it's time to authorize people, would be like, wow, what a surprising development. Whereas, like, Donald Trump has convinced us all that, like, he really hates immigrants, right? So if he were to pivot, which, like, I don't think he will, but if he were to, it would be, like, a big shocking surprise. Whereas everything Obama did was read by people who were skeptical of Obama as part of a fakeout, but immigrants were feeling very targeted because, in practice, people were still being locked up and deported. And then Democrats' overall popularity is sinking like a stone because the economy is garbage. People don't like the Affordable Care Act. The financial services industry has, like, turned on them because of Dodd-Frank bill. And it's beginning to look like 
whatever Obama's political strategy may or may not have been, they were going to clearly, like, lose tons and tons of seats in Congress, and there was going to be no, like, well, I'll make it up to you next time, right? And so that's where you get, like, a lame duck push for the DREAM Act, right? I mean, there is a, a effort by Harry Reid, Nancy Pelosi, Barack Obama, whoever's left, to be like, okay, like, what, what can we make good on yeah. here, right? Yep. And this is what they come up with, a bill that had had Republican support, sort of, you know, in theory. They put it on the table in the lame duck. It hasn't had regular order, blah, 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 blah. So that gives a certain number of Republican members the pretext to sort of get off the bus. But, I mean, people should know, when this finally does come up for a, a vote in 2010, it actually did have enough Republican votes to get over the top, um, given the large number of Democrats in, in the Senate. But Kay Hagan, Mark Pryor, Ben Nelson, John Tester, and Max Baucus uh, also voted no. Um, Joe Manchin didn't show up for the vote, but he said he would have voted no had he had he not been there. And, you know, this is important to recall. I mean, most of these people are uh, no longer with us politically. Uh, but, you know, People remember that the Democratic Party uh, used to uh, win, have have won more and more elections in the past. There's one recently. And, and part of that dynamic was that Democrats, particularly these Democrats from the, from the Great Plains area, right, where you have Nelson, Tester, and, and Baucus, um, you know, were not like on board for the new dovish position on immigration that has come to take over the the, the Democratic Party. Um, and at the same time, you know, there was historically more of a division inside the, the Republican Party as well. Obviously, with Donald Trump, you know, the Republican Party has shifted well to the right on, on immigration. But the Democrats have also, it, it's not so much that the official stance is different from the one that, like, Barack Obama took, but the party has become much more uniformly aligned uh, behind this kind of position, right? I mean, if modern-day Democrats had as many seats as they had had in 2010, like, this would have gotten done. Uh, but but they weren't modern-day Democrats. Um, and right. I mean, I do think that some of this is that it's simply— because immigration enforcement in particular is concentrated in the executive branch, the party that doesn't hold the White House is freer to just criticize without having to have an alternative, um, which I think has, has kind of helped Democrats in this regard. But I want to go back to what you were saying about the political pressures that led to the DREAM Act in 2010, because they're really similar to what ultimately pushes Obama to, to institute DACA in 2012. It's just that in 2012, the Democratic Party realized that this was necessary before an election instead of after the election. Um, that, you know, because the DREAM Act doesn't pass in 2010 and because the, you know, enforcement bank shot strategy has continued uh, with an asterisk that I'm going to get to in, in a second, uh, there's still no good reason for Latino voters to show up to support Barack Obama for re-election or other Democrats. There's still very little good faith that's being extended from the Republican Party on immigration. Uh, and there's not, you know, the, the clock is ticking for something to get produced. So at that point, 
there was actually like a poll in the field of Latino voters in mid-June of 2012 when Obama announced DACA and his, you know, approval ratings went for, you know, like jumped by 20 points over a couple of days with Latino voters. And motivation to vote jumped as well because he was actually offering something that had been, you know, a version of something that had been asked for, for you know, you could argue the first time since the Affordable Care Act was passed, and the Affordable Care Act, as you mentioned, not super popular at that point. Um, but the asterisk that I want to get to is, I think, something that might be more instructive for Donald Trump than people might think, because the other reason that the Obama administration's enforcement bank shot was kind of hamstrung was that they weren't consistent in how they were messaging it, right? They were downplaying the extent to which they were deporting people, which if you're politically trying to build political capital for, you know, by saying you're tough on the borders, and then most of what you say is, oh, well, we're not actually being as aggressive as you say we are, you undermine yourself. And in particular, the Obama administration was saying we're not deporting dreamers. You know, we're not rounding up students. We're deprioritizing people who have lived in the U.S. and don't have criminal records. We're telling ICE agents not to go after them, etc. On the whole, that they certainly were telling agents not to do that. And it's not like, you know, it's not like dreamers were disproportionately represented among the people who were getting deported in 2010 and 2011. But simply having grown up in the U.S. and not having a criminal record could not prevent you from being deported because you were still deportable because you were still unauthorized. And so Obama was going around to Latino communities and saying, no, guys, I, you know, fake news, we're not doing this. And people were holding up their orders of deportation and saying, what the hell do you mean? Um, which is, you know, both a, it's it's not a good way to build faith, not only that you're going to keep your promises to legalize people, but also just fundamentally that you're not trustworthy um, among the Latino voter community. And so fixing that, both fixing the kind of internal ICE agent problem of, managers could tell agents to deprioritize in deprioritize certain categories of immigrants but couldn't actually prevent them from deporting them and to fix the kind of public facing executive problem of you're not being consistent in who you're going after uh, daca allowed them to be much more forthright about this is a category of people we are not deporting this is a category of people we are deporting the reason this is relevant to the trump administration is that even though you're right that President Trump at every opportunity has talked about how tough he is on the borders, he and his administration have also said that they're mostly going after criminals, which, as in the Obama administration, is not entirely false, but is also not like they're keeping blinders on. They are, from what we can tell of who's actually getting deported, it is people who are coming into onto ICE's radar, many of whom do have criminal records because that's a good way to get onto ICE's radar, many of whom are just collateral damage being picked up during raids or check, coming to check in because they were picked up a few years ago and ICE decided not to deport them then, et cetera. That means that if DACA is ended and if DREAMers start getting deported, that there is a strain of messaging from the Trump administration that's going to start looking really sketchy. The bad hombres, like the real reason we're cracking down on immigration is because immigrants cause crimes. Deporting dreamers, even, even more than just stripping them of their work permits, would do a lot to make it clear that that is not the case. Right. And, and 
let's come to this because right, there's there's a difference between a sort of stated enforcement priority and a real protection, right? I mean, at some mm. point back back when I was a, a teen, I got uh, I got arrested for drinking beer in a park with with some of my friends, and I seriously doubt that this was ever like an enforcement priority of the New York City Police Department. I'm sure there was probably somebody on paper somewhere being like, why, like, what are you doing with your time, Mister Undercover Detective? Like, uh, you know. But you can't show up in court. That's not like a valid legal defense, right? right? Like whether or not the detectives should have been spending their time busting kids drinking beer in a park who weren't bothering anybody. The fact of the matter is yeah. we got busted. We had to show up. And like we were duly punished according to the rules that were on the books. And this was the whole issue in the Obama era is that like he could say however many times he wanted, like, well, we're instructing people to not target certain kinds of populations. But if you wound up in the system, you were in the system. Right, right. right. And, they, and initially they were trying to, you know, th- th- for a while they were focusing on, well, if we open a case in immigration court against you, but really you're someone we shouldn't be going through the whole rigmarole of immigration court, we shouldn't be spending our resources mm-hmm. to deport you, then we'll, ki- we'll, we'll quietly close that case. We won't like, you know, we're not going to give you legal status or anything, but we'll, you know, give you temporary work authorization and we'll just, we'll kind of officially say that this wasn't a case that we needed to pursue in court. That creates a weird situation where if you get arrested and you get put into deportation proceedings, you end up with more safety than someone who's never been arrested and put into deportation proceedings at all. So it's not only a super perverse incentive for people themselves who like now want, you know, you don't want to create a situation where people want to go to ICE right. and turn themselves in. Um But it also, you know, it didn't do a whole lot for people who were just going around and living their lives and knowing that if something happened to them, they could get the case against them closed, maybe. But in the meantime, they still can't work legally. They still can't thrive legally in the United States, et cetera, et cetera. We talk a lot about about health and, and healthcare on on the weeds, but a lot of people don't think about the role that dental health plays in that. But uh, a lot of studies suggest that having good oral health impacts your overall health. Uh, but a lot of us don't brush our teeth properly, and you can start brushing better today with Quip. Uh, it's, it's a new company; they're refreshing the way people approach uh, brushing their teeth and dental hygiene. It, it's an electric toothbrush that packs premium vibration and timer features into a really cool, slim design, and it's half the cost of bulkier brushes. It's like you know, you imagine. Like, like if Apple made a made a toothbrush, except it didn't cost a thousand dollars. You got to see it yourself. It, it looks really nice. Brush with it yourself. It works well. You can even subscribe to receive new brush heads on a dentist recommended three month plan for just five dollars, including free shipping. Uh, that's a really important part. I mean, I got one of these you know fancy electronic brushes, and the problem is, is like I don't actually think to go exchange it for the new brush head on the kind of schedule I'm supposed to do. With Quip, you know, you get the the three month plan that dentists recommend. It's it's not that expensive. $5 a brush, and it just it comes to your door. So it's convenient. So you're doing the right thing without thinking about it, taking care of your teeth the way you ought to be. Um, they're backed by leading dentists. They were named as one of Time Magazine's Best Inventors of 2016. And they made an Oprah's 2017 uh, New Year's O-List. Uh, it starts at just $25. Right now, if you go to getquip.com weeds and get a Quip electric toothbrush, you're going to get your first refill pack for free. Uh, that's your first refill pack free at getquip.com 
getquip.com slash weeds. That's G-E-T-Q-U-I-P.com slash weeds. Getquip.com. So DACA, yes. it's it's 2012. The sort of political calculus has shifted a little bit, and it's like time to do something popular, something that Latinos will be excited about, something that's a down payment on the idea that in the second term, Obama is going to deliver on his promises, right. and a way to take advantage in part of Mitt Romney and self-deportation to like draw a to draw a clear line, right? To say, look, guys, like there is a real difference between us on immigration. Like you should come vote for me. So w- what does DACA do? Uh, so there are lots of ways that the federal government can kind of give temporary relief or protection to immigrants. And one of them is called deferred action, which is, you know, for a certain period of time, we are not going to deport you for sure. And during, you know, usually it comes with a authorization to work legally in the U.S. during that time. So what DACA does is it says we're going to open up applications for people to actually apply for deferred action instead of just having it given to them in the process of their case. And you'll be able to do this if you're if you came to the U.S. before you were 16, if you're 16 or older now, if you're under 31 now, if you, you know, ha- are in high school or have a high school diploma or have a GED, if you don't have much of a criminal record, et cetera. Um, And if you apply and are granted deferred action, that will work for two years and then you can renew. And as long as you still fit the criteria, we'll renew that application. So that's 2012. It's now 2017. So over the course of, you know, a lot of people applied for DACA when it opened up in August of 2012, a lot of people didn't, either because they didn't know that they qualified or because they were a little wary of giving their information to the federal government when all the federal government had done for a decade was deport them and their families, or because they didn't have the money that the application took, et cetera. So the kind of bump in the snake of DACA has kind of occurred in late 2012 and then in late 2014 and then in late 2016 as people you know, apply for renewals, it's spread out a bit because you can you can renew before your DACA officially expires. So the reason that I'm going through all of this and the reason that that two-year period is super important is that if DACA is ended, what is probably most likely is that Trump will say, we are not taking away work permits from anyone who already has them, but when those work permits expire, you're not going to be allowed to apply for a renewal. So the two-year grant that people currently have is going to be their last one. That's going to sound like everybody's going to be cool for two years. In practice, what it means is that fairly consistently, starting you know a few weeks from whenever Trump makes this announcement, people are going to start falling out of DACA protections. There's going to be a pretty, someone has actually run the numbers, and it's a pretty consistent decline over the two years that the program itself will sunset of like a few thousand people every week losing protection from deportation and losing their work permits. That's something that they'll be able to prepare for because they'll know when the date of expiration on their DACA is, but it's not going to create the kind of chaos that like the travel ban did of people immediately not knowing what was going on with them, but it's still going to be you know, a pretty short term. It's not great to be in a situation where you know that three months from now you're going to lose your job and you're going to be able to get deported. Well, and also, so to be in the program, right, to have applied, you're now like 
on some list somewhere, right? I mean, this seems like even if it feels to me, at least intuitively, that even if you're you're nine months, even if you're even if you're twenty three months away from you know your, your authorization expiring, if you know that you're going to lose this permission, you're going to want to start doing something like probably soon to create a situation where there aren't just like ICE agents at your door, you know, the, the, the next morning, right? I mean, it seems like politically they are not going to want to like start rounding up gainfully employed, sympathetic, law-abiding people like by the thousands week after week. But it also, I don't, I don't quite see how it's supposed to work from the Trump administration's perspective if you're hoping to get this done like quietly somehow. It's the big question if DACA is ended is what, you know, is what happens to this database, right? It is not super likely that both because the agency that has the DACA information is not ICE and there are some regulations or at least agency norms that would discourage them from just handing over a list. Um, But also because, as you said, it's not going to look politically great for ICE to be going to everybody's door the day after their DACA expires. It's also not going to be possible. Like we're talking about, you know, 800,000 people over the course of two years is 400,000 people a year, which is the maximum that's ever been deported in modern U.S. history. And that counts a lot of people who it was easier to deport because you didn't have to go through immigration court. So there's really no way that without a whole lot more ICE funding and immediate hiring and a lot of other things government isn't very good at doing quickly, that you can actually talk about people getting deported en masse. This is much more, you know, the enforcement strategy here would have to be some kind of self-deportation variant of, well, if people have several months and they can plan, then maybe what they'll plan to do is leave the country, which maybe that is true. Probably that is not true. They're sort of running that playbook with these Haitian earthquake. Yes. I mean, TPS is an acronym that you're probably going to be hearing a lot more of in the next six months to a year because it's very similar to what Trump is doing with DACA insofar as there are a lot of groups of people who have been given temporary protections, temporary protected status, um, because there have been natural disasters or something else in their home country. And that's kind of stretched out for a while. And now the Trump administration is taking a really hard look and is planning to kind of sun- is has made noise that it's going to be sunsetting that for a lot of these people, including most immediately Haitians. The difference between those is that while Haitians, many of the Haitians who currently have temporary protected status have been in the U.S. for a while, it's not a group of people who have grown up here, right? Sure. Um, so there's, there is kind of an important difference there. Um, but in both cases, you're basically telling people who have been who were at one point in the U.S. without authorization, well, we're going to take your authorization away from you, and maybe this time it will somehow work to deter you when it didn't work initially. If you're ending DACA, you are either doing it because you want to send a message that people should not be in the U.S. without proper authorization, and in order to send that message, you're willing to expand the number of people who are working in the U.S. illegally, who are deportable living in the U.S., just for the sake of kind of sending the message that the rule of law is important, 
or you're trying to do it because you think you can actually reduce the unauthorized population. That second option only works if you're going to have self-deportation. And with this particular population of people who were brought to the U.S. at an average of six years old, who lived in the U.S. while being unauthorized for much of their lives and didn't appear to be, you know, packing up and moving before getting protections, who now, over the five years that they've had protections, have gotten have bought cars, have bought houses, have gotten new degrees, are absolutely, by any measure you can assess, they're more integrated than they were before DACA was instituted. To assume that they're going to somehow now pick up and leave when they are more rooted in the U.S. is not a sound policy assumption. It is the the only likely likely outcome if DACA gets ended is that you are essentially expanding the number of people who are living in the shadows. You are pushing people back into the shadows legally, if not socially. And that is hard to wrap one's head around as a matter of what you're trying to get out of this. But it makes a lot of sense if the Trump administration is not thinking, ter- is is not, does not care terribly much about the cost that is being imposed on these people and is very concerned about the putative message that is sent by the law. Yeah, so I mean, to hand out maybe some some political advice, you know, to my, my old friend Jared Kushner and, you know, anyone else from the White House who, who's listening, I think you should really consider that something you're going to want to say in general is that you have succeeded in securing the border, you know, by taking this tougher stance, the, the you know, unlike uh, Barack Obama, you've like you've gotten this done. You've maybe scared Central American families off from coming here and, and applying for asylum. Uh, you're already maxing out what the immigration court system can do in terms of deportations. Uh, Cross border flows appear to be down. You want to take credit for that. And so, a good thing to say to people would be, "Look, it's okay. We do not need to." increase the intimidation level to deter future unauthorized crossings, because at this point, the unauthorized crossings have fallen a lot. They're going to continue to fall because I'm so tough. Uh, You should focus on, you know, the economic consequences. You got a jobs report number today that was okay, but it was softer. Throughout 2017, the jobs numbers have been softer than they were in 2016. Your employment population ratio number is falling a little bit. This is a prime working age population. Like you really, like you don't, you don't need this mess. And it in many ways sends a, I mean, it sends a clear signal in a whose side are you on sense to rescind it, and I, I get that that's sort of the appeal of this, but it, it genuinely sends a mixed and confusing message to the sort of muddled middle voter here as to what you're trying to say about immigration enforcement in the Trump administration. You've been saying for six months now that John Kelly did a great job of getting tough on the border and sealing this down. Um, if that's true, and it, it sort of seems to be true, there is no need to deter, increase the deterrence level. Like with DACA in place and with whatever else you've done in place, you have succeeded in creating a a fair amount of deterrence. And like, you can really just like let this thing lie. Um, You know, don't be bullied by Republican attorney generals into doing this. Like go on Twitter and go bully them. That's 
That's what I think. I think that is like sound, non-concerned trolling advice that picking this fight at every turn is sort of pointless. But can we talk about this lawsuit? Yeah, sure. Uh, because I guess the political origins of this is that that DACA happens, this is very kind of popular um I don't know. I mean, so, yeah. some people complain, but it's but it's not a big deal. Right. There's there's very little, even the kind of, you know, the Steve Kings of the world, the immigration hardliners, it kind of looks like they're going to go hard on DACA, and then they don't. And, you know, Steve King famously in 2013 during the comprehensive immigration reform fight, you know, complained about dreamers and said that they were, you know, all drug smugglers with calves the size of cantaloupes and was pilloried for it, right? right. There wasn't like, he wasn't, a cause celeb in the same way that people who say equally inflammatory things these days become like celebrated on the right. Um, David Nakamura of the Washington Post actually wrote a wrote an article yesterday that kind of pointed out that Obama was the victim of his own success on DACA, and I think that's the right way to think about it, right? Because DACA was popular, because it was a success, it was effective as a policy program in a way that really very little that Obama had done in his first term was successful, immediately successful as a policy program. Um, he then, you know, was feeling a similar pressure to do things for other groups of unauthorized immigrants who hadn't been, you know, because comprehensive immigration reform had, hadn't passed, hadn't been protected. And so in late 2014, he announced that he was going to create similar programs. First of all, he was going to allow more people to qualify for DACA. Uh, for example, if they had been too old when the initial program was announced in 2012, and also that he was going to create this new program for parents of American citizens or legal permanent residents. And that, you know, we're going from a population of about a million people who would have been eligible for the initial DACA program to like four and a half million, which is a substantial proportion of the unauthorized population as a whole. And that really seems for Republicans like a bridge too far, right? Uh, Republican state officials in particular decide that, you know, this is a period during which uh, it's very popular for Republicans to sue the Obama administration to stop Obama administration policies. And so a group of Republicans decide to do this with the deferred action programs. They choose the Fifth Circuit, which is one of the more conservative appellate courts in the nation, and they choose within the Fifth Circuit, the Southern District of Texas, uh, where Judge Andrew Hannon is known for going out of his way to talk about how bad illegal immigration is in, right. in opinions where that may not be super relevant. Uh, so it ends up in Hannon's court, and Hannon, surprising very few people, says, yes, this program is likely enough to be unconstitutional that it probably shouldn't start. We should make sure that we're you know, I'm going to I'm going to look over the claims, but I'm confident enough that I'm initially going to strike this down that you shouldn't even bother to put it into place. Uh, that's the case that eventually becomes becomes the U.S. v. Texas case that the, that the Supreme Court in 2016 deadlocked on 4-4 because they only had eight people, um, which meant that the Fifth Circuit's ruling, which kept the program on hold, became de facto the law. Um, theoretically, that lawsuit is still ongoing after Barack Obama was, you know, was replaced by Donald Trump in the presidency. The question of why this lawsuit was still ongoing became very relevant, especially when the Trump administration officially rescinded all of the things that were supposed to put the program in place. Um, but they've been kind of stalling on formally closing it. And so 
in July when these attorneys general, again, led by the Texas attorney general, said, look, you're going to have to fish or cut bait on DACA. What they said was, we're going to file in this lawsuit that you still haven't closed on these other deferred action programs to get the judge, same judge who initially struck, uh, struck down the first programs, to rule that by this logic, DACA is also unconstitutional, which is something he's he's pretty clearly believes is the case. So they're using this, they're using the same, you know, lawsuit that has gone well for them in the past to target a program that initially in 2014, they were very clear they weren't targeting because initially in 2014, it was still popular enough that it seemed kind of like overreach right. to well, say so we're going to do this, ex- we're going to cut down this existing thing in addition to stopping stuff from going into effect. So the politics of DACA and DAPA, DAPA with, is the bigger later program, are, are quite different. And sort of the problem that both Obama and now Republicans had is that the legal issues are actually fairly similar, even though the the politics of it are quite different, right? So, I mean, I think yeah, I, the I states really didn't help themselves. Really, like they started by saying this isn't about DACA, this isn't about DACA, and then many of their arguments over the course of the litigation were, we can't trust the administration to do this other this new program in a constitutional way because if you look at how DACA is being conducted, it's not being conducted in a constitutional way, which it's really hard to then draw the line and say, but we're not talking about the constitutionality of DACA. And conversely, I mean, I think the Obama administration in its hearts would have really loved it to be the case that DACA was obviously constitutional, but that DAPA was completely impossible and that there was nothing whatsoever that they could do and that it could be like, I did this thing for you. It's totally legal, 100% legit. I'm with you all the way. This other thing I just, I cannot do. You have to elect Democratic Party senators. But the reality is that the legal issue is considerably muddier than that. And like on the theory that he could do this somewhat unprecedented extension of executive, of deferred action, he he could do a big right. extension of deferred action. And therefore, since he could do it, he's under a lot of pressure to, in fact, do it and the- take a take a step that, that I think Democrats, I think the White House always knew was like a lot political dicier. And they would have done it back in 2012 if it was something they were like really enthusiastic about running on and defending politically. But it became impossible to to not do it because they, they had, under their own legal theories, they had the authority to push the boundaries further. So, you know, they, they had to sort of, you know, dance with the ones that brung them. And it, it created a problem for them. And now it's sort of swinging the other way, where I I think a lot of Republicans would, in some idealized way, want this to be just something they can't address. Um, But the fact is, is that by the logic of their own lawsuits, their own criticisms of DAPA, everything else, like, this should go forward. And the Trump administration, too, right? I mean, this would be a great issue to just punt on and, like, not make a decision either way. But if a lawsuit is going to be filed— they're going to have to say either, no, like, we are going to court to say the state of Texas is wrong, or they're going to have to say, no, we're cutting bait on this program. You can't really just keep saying, well, we're reviewing it. It's a tough issue and talk about something you're more comfortable with. 
Yeah, I mean, I, this brings us back as a policy matter to what we were describing, what we were talking about at the beginning of this episode, and like the way that things worked for most of American history on immigration. You can't have big problems if you have small and easy solutions to small and easy problems, right? If you, if it's easy for someone to come to the U.S. legally it's really hard to build up a substantial and authorized population. If it's really easy to legalize someone who's living in the U.S. illegally, it's really hard to build up a substantial and authorized population. The reason that it was so hard for the Obama administration to draw a line in the sand and say, well, DACA was cool, but all of these other things you're asking us to do are not cool, is because that line in the sand doesn't exist. There is a lot of flexibility for the executive branch to give this kind of temporary protection out because the executive branch is supposed to have a lot of control over who does and doesn't get deported. The reason that that DACA and certainly DAPA seemed unprecedented regardless is because they were big and because there wasn't an obvious way, you know, like I was talking about earlier, for people who had protections to get full legal status and eventual citizenship from there, that it seemed like a substitute for congressional action because there wasn't an obvious path forward. That only happens when you don't have easy ways for people to to kind of, when the system isn't flexible enough for these things to kind of balance themselves out. So by, you know, by having these big congressional bills, by having a lot of money poured into border security, you created a situation where the only way that the problem could be solved was with a big splashy solution. The big splashy solution in the case of DACA, didn't create a political problem. In the case of DAPA, it did. But we now are in a position where the Trump administration has a big problem, and the only thing they can do is a big, splashy solution. There is no compromise where the Trump administration says, well, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna protect the people who already have it. We're just not gonna give it to anyone new. They could theoretically do that. Texas would still fight them. They'd still have the court battle. They don't. They clearly don't want to make a big production out of ending DACA. They clearly have to because they've put themselves in a position where they have a big problem and they're going to need a big response to it. And meanwhile, the 800,000 people who are living under DACA are now going through what is like the third or fourth round since inauguration of rumors that the program is imminently going to end. They're looking at this Tuesday deadline. They're hearing all of these reports out of the White House from various interested factions that say the president's made a decision, the president hasn't made a decision. Even if they pass the Tuesday deadline, like, you know, like Matt said, there's still going to be this court battle. Um, and that uncertainty is creating its own, it's, it's not it is better to have DACA and be worried that you're going to lose it than not to have it from that from their perspective. But it's still not good. And so they're kind of waiting because they're at the mercy of a system that has become so sclerotic that the only ways that it can be addressed are through big, splashy actions on the part of the executive branch or from Congress. All right. Uh, well, you know, with that sort of sobering thought, I'm uh, going to leave you. We will, you know, see how this plays out over over the next few days. Um, thanks very much, uh, Dara, for, for coming on and explaining this all to us. Uh, if something dramatic happens, we may have to, you know, have you back on to uh, talk about talk about the consequences and, and what follows from that. I uh, want to thank uh, our producer, Jillian Weinberger, uh, Peter Leonard, the engineer for this episode. Um, 
thanks everyone uh, for, for listening. Hope to see some of you at the uh, Now Here This Fest in, in New York coming up soon. Woo-hoo. And uh, woo! Yeah, and we will uh, we'll be back next week with some more episodes. <laughs>